tabernacle. With the help of the Lord this morning, I'm just going to be teaching more than preaching about the altar. The altar. Amen. Father, we are so blessed to be here. Lord, we miss our brothers and sisters that aren't well. We ask you to touch their bodies, Lord. But for those of us that are in your house today, we pray that you open our hearts, open our understanding. Lord, may your word contribute to our relationship with you. May it strengthen us, strengthen our understanding, and help us, Lord, as we go forward together with you, we pray. Anoint me to deliver your word as you would have it to be delivered. In Jesus' name, amen. There are some things that we do as Christians um, that are direct commandments from the Scripture. That, that's our ultimate authority. That's our baseline. That's our non-negotiables. There are other things that we do that are application of the principles that are found in God's Word. And God has deliberately set it up that way because people change, society changes, technology changes, development changes. So many different things have changed from the, the time when the Word of God was actually penned. And so the Lord has given us commandments, but He's also given us principles that we can apply to our lives. And then there are some things that we do as Christians and in churches that are probably better described as scripturally based traditions. Now, tradition is not right or wrong of itself, but it's important that we understand that tradition does not carry the authority of Scripture. Uh, if, we, if we don't recognize that, then we can very easily become religious and hold traditions to be of the same value as the Word of God, which is never a good thing. We see that in a lot of orthodox forms of Christianity where tradition is considered as sacred as the Word of God and that, that's, well, to put it plainly, that's tragic and that's wrong. But, but to balance that as well, God does honor some traditions, especially when they're based upon scriptural principles and they have an appropriate motive or foundation. I'll give you a very easy example of that, the way we have our service structured when we come here on Sunday morning, Sunday night. We have worship first, then we have the Word of God. There's no directive in the Scripture that says you must have a song service and then you have the preaching of the Word of God. I've known pastors that have switched it up and had the preaching first just to catch the people out that come late through the door. Whether or not that's the right attitude, you can discuss that amongst yourselves. But the, this practice or this tradition is based upon the principle from God's Word that we enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. And so because of that, we practice or our tradition is that we worship first because we want to invite the presence of God to be here, because we want Him to move on us and hopefully it will help to prepare our hearts for the preaching of the Word. Now, I don't think that if we preach first that the preaching would be a failure and our hearts wouldn't be ready. But there is, there is a principle behind our practice. And I think God honors that. I don't think the Lord's sitting there on His throne saying, I wish they wouldn't do that. That's not an exact commandment. But in the passage we read from Hebrews, we are warned about not going back to the Old Testament law, but trusting in the grace of God. If you are not familiar with the, the epistle to the Hebrews, much of the focus of that epistle is a contrast between the new covenant being better than the old covenant, with the new high priest being better than the old high priest, with the new sacrifice being better than the old sacrifice. And you see that backwards and forwards through the book of Hebrews. And this passage is the same, that we are warned about not going back to that Old Testament law, but to trust in the grace and the new covenant that we have in the New Testament. It uses the expression, not with meats, which I mentioned is not an instruction to veganism, but rather 
It's a reference to the dietary laws that the Israelites were under in the Old Testament. Romans also says that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And it's, it's, so it's, it's reference to those laws, but also to the law as a whole in the Old Testament. And the writer of Hebrews reminds the readers that those things didn't profit them. Even if they kept all those rules, it didn't get them where they really needed to go. And so verse 10 says that we have an altar that the people who still cling to the Old Testament law have no right to eat off because they're trying to keep an old covenant instead of a new covenant. So in other words, if you cling to the Old Testament law and its sacrifices, you disqualify the cross of Calvary. The cross and what was accomplished on the cross replaced the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. I think most of us probably understand that. But this morning, I want to teach about the altar, about our practice of having an altar call and what it means and how we should understand it when we talk about coming to the altar. Amen. We have This is a tradition that sometimes during a service we will have an opportunity to come to the church to pray, to come to the, sorry, to come to the front of the church to pray and to come to that area to be prayed for. And we often refer to that area as the altar. Now we need to be careful, particularly with new people and guests, that when we say the altar is open, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to somebody who's never been to church. They don't know what the altar is. They didn't know it was closed before we opened it. So we have to be careful about the religious language that we use. And sometimes you'll, you'll actually hear Pastor Gavin say, if you'd like to come to the front of the church, which is especially, if you're in ministry, you need to be aware of who you're ministering to. If there are people there that understand that language, use that language. But if, you, if there are people there who you're not sure will understand, you might as well be speaking in a foreign language. Amen. And the Bible... The Bible has many, many examples of people who built altars unto God, people who offered sacrifices to the Lord. Cain and Abel are probably the first recorded people to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And Noah is the first one, I believe, that is recorded as building an altar. Throughout Scripture, altars were made of earth, of wood, or of stone. The patriarchs or the fathers of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all built altars in a part of their journey with God. Leaders in the Old Testament like Moses and Joshua built altars. Kings like Saul and David built altars. Prophets like Elijah built altars. Moses oversaw the construction of the brazen or the brass altar that was so central to the worship of God in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Unlike the altars that others built, this one had very specific instructions about how it was to be made, dimensions, construction materials, all of those things were very, very precise. Amen. So the idea or the practice of people who believe in God and have faith in God approaching Him via an altar or using an altar to offer a sacrifice is throughout the Old Testament. But now when we come to the New Testament, we do not read in the book of Acts where Peter, often considered the apostle to the Jews, or Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, preached and then gave an altar call. You don't read that. It's not there. Amen. It seems to get into history a little bit as though in the 18 and 1900s during a period known as the Great Awakening, there were revivalist preachers that would give an invitation for people to come forward to pray or to be prayed for. Some of those names you may know, they weren't necessarily apostolic, but some of you probably heard of John Wesley, Charles Finney, Jonathan Edwards preached a very well-known sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
And some of those people would do that. And, and as a part of that development or that um, stage in church history, perhaps we could say, in, in modern church history, another thing that would also happen is that at the front of the church or whatever they were meeting in, the structure they were meeting in, they would have long wooden benches, like a flat, simple timber park bench, where people could come and kneel and pray, and those benches were often called mourner's benches because the act of repentance, the act of of contrition for sin, was often demonstrated in a similar way to demonstrating grief. And many of us can remember when we repented of our sins for the first time, there was that realization and that recognition that we had sinned against God, that we had broken the law of God, and that our sins were a part of what contributed to His need to go to the cross. And in that revelation, we feel a regret for our sins. We feel a regret for the life that we've lived. And we often weep and demonstrate behavior that is not dissimilar to those that mourn. Genuine repentance can certainly seem like somebody is mourning. Amen. That's why when you know, we record our preaching and uh, we upload it to the podcast, but I'm quite careful that when I take that recording home, the first thing I do is I cut the announcements off the front because the rest of the world doesn't need to know when the church picnic is. But I also trim the end of the recording when people are praying because while I'm very fond of powerful moves of the Spirit in the altar, it's not a great thing to listen to on a recording because it sounds like people are often in mourning and very, very emotional. And so during this period of the Great Awakening, Sometimes as those people would travel and preach or hold a revival in certain areas for an extended period of time, perhaps they used large tents. Sometimes they just constructed very basic like wooden halls or structures for those revival meetings to be, to, to be held in. And one of their practices was, was that the floors were often covered in sawdust. Okay, it was cheap. It was easy to clean up and replace. It, it apparently helped to, with the acoustics as well. I don't know if they were thinking of that at the time, but they say that it did. And what is interesting, some of this is just some history, but what is interesting that in one rural area in North America around about 1910, there were lumberjacks that worked deep in the forest, deep in, you know, it was very uh, primitive countryside, very rough, and those lumberjacks were known to carry bags of sawdust with a hole in it. So as they walked deep into the forest to, to fell the trees, there would be a trail to lead them back out. You know, they didn't have lights. They didn't necessarily have map, maps. A lot of them, it was, it was new country that they were exploring. And so uh, they would come out of those forests to follow the trail of sawdust back at the end of a day's work. And so putting that together with the, the sawdust on the floor in those revival meetings, when people would hear the preaching of the Word of God and be convicted of their sins, and they would go to the front of that place for, of the service to pray, to be prayed for, to repent, it actually became known as hitting the sawdust trail. Obviously, there was sawdust on the floor, but also there was the parallel of the fact that they were leaving a place where they were lost and possibly in danger to return to somewhere where they would be safe again. Amen, which is just a a little interesting bit of history. I'm kind of glad we don't cover the floor with sawdust here today. But at some point in that portion of church history, somebody seems to have connected the idea of coming forward to pray or to be prayed for with the offering of sacrifice in the Scripture and the term altar call began to be used. And that's a little bit of history of where that comes from. And I would suggest to us today that anywhere 
that you cry out to God can become an altar. Any place that you pray, whether it's your home, on the job, in the church, wherever it may be, whether you're in the bush, on your own, anywhere that you turn your attention to God and begin to worship Him and cry out to Him, you are building an altar. When we spend time in prayer every day, hopefully we are building an altar. We are presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. Now, it could be argued by those that might want to be very particular about details that the modern practice of having altar calls is not found in the Scripture. And I would say that's accurate, but I would say that I believe the principle is. The principle of what we do is. The existence of an altar, once the tabernacle was built, in an established location for the congregation to approach is biblical. The people of God were required to come to the house of God to worship, to offer sacrifices, to bring their offerings to the altar. It involved a physical movement from one place to another to approach God. Now, we understand that God is everywhere at once. We understand that. We're not saying he's more in one physical location and less in another but yet they were required to present themselves at the house of God. They were required to bring their offering to the altar. It's important that we understand that only the combination of a right attitude and a right heart together with their actions made that acceptable in the sight of the Lord. If they brought their offering just to hurry up and get it over and done with, it wasn't something that pleased the Lord. But if their hearts were right when they came to the altar, that's what made it acceptable in the sight of God. And the same principle applies when we come to the altar here at church. God is still everywhere at once. He's in your home. He's on your job. He's in your car when you're abusing the other driver going down the freeway because they're doing 20 k's an hour under the speed limit. He's everywhere at once. And yet, there is still something spiritual that takes place when a right desire in our heart is joined together with physical steps of faith. There is something spiritual that takes place. Many, if not all of us, can testify of what God has done in our lives when we have responded to the Word of God and gone to an altar to pray. It may have been in a church building. It may have been in a hired hall. It may have been at a youth camp. It, it could have been anywhere. But when there is a response by faith, the Lord does great things. Now, again, I believe without a doubt that God hears our prayers when we cry out to him from our seats, okay? There's no red zone that we cross into where God is where he previously wasn't. So we can pray where we're seated. I'm not suggesting that that, that necessarily makes a difference per se. But there is still something powerful about walking to an old-fashioned altar and presenting yourself before the Lord because faith combines with action and God honors that. You know, sometimes one of the things that holds people back from coming to the altar is what will people think? What will people say? Particularly if the preachers preached pretty hard about a certain sin and called people to repent. You don't want to be thought of to have that sin in your life. You know, if the, if the preacher preaches against immorality, which we should, you know, you don't want to get up and come to the altar when he's preached a message about immorality because you're worried about what other people will, will think. And so... If that affects us, then surely the flip side of that is that there is something that happens when we don't care what people think and we get ourselves to the altar to pray. I'm very grateful to have spent most of my life in an apostolic church. I'm very grateful to, to know what it is to go to the altar. I believe the altar is a wonderful place. 
I believe to go and respond to the word of God with the right motive. I believe there's something very powerful about stepping out of your seat and physically moving in faith toward the Lord and saying, here I am, Lord. Here I am. I believe that. I believe we should teach our children to come to the altar. I believe that as parents, we should model coming to the altar for them. We should not be strangers to the altar. You know, I've, I've seen churches where pastors have taught their saints that every time the altar is open, they should go I don't think that's the right approach. I think that becomes a bit like Pavlov's dog where you ring the bell, you know, and everybody has to come to the altar. If you don't know who Pavlov was, you can talk to somebody later on. But I I don't think we should be like robots where when the preacher says the altar's open, we all feel guilty and compelled to come to the front. I think we're missing something if we do that. But by the same token, I think that we should be regulars at the altar. I don't think we should only come to the altar when we know that we've got sin in our lives. I think there's something that's good for our souls to present ourselves to the Lord. I think that's. I, I think if you're not sure, the best thing is go. If you think, well, should I, shouldn't I? Just go. It's not going to cost you anything. You know, if you're standing and you see going, should I go to the altar? The answer is yes. <laughs> it's that easy. You know, I mean, it's not like if you come to the altar, go, oh, that was a mistake. What have I done now? You, you present yourself to the Lord. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. So if you're not sure, err on the side of faith and step out. What's the worst thing that can happen? You can come and pray for a while and go back to your seat. Not seeing a problem. Amen. Many of the things that took place at the altars we read about in Scripture take place for us when we respond to the Word of God today. I mean, we come to the altar. And this is not a complete list, but this is some of them. The most obvious is that things died on the altar. In the altar in the Old Testament, things died. Most of the time, it was an animal that was offered as a sacrifice on that altar. We know in the New Testament that Jesus is our sacrifice, amen, and that we don't need to bring animals anymore. I'm kind of glad for that. But things still need to die on the altar. There are still things that need to die on the altar. And the most common thing is what Brother Wilmot ministered to us about last Sunday night, and that is our flesh that sinful nature that wants to please ourselves more than God needs to be put to death. You know, I I know my flesh. The more often I get it to the altar, the better. I don't get to go to the altar quite as much as you folk because I'm normally preaching and praying for people. But I promise you, when I have my opportunities, I get to the altar, whether it's here or it's at home. Amen. Our flesh needs to die. Amen. I read a quote online the other day that really resonated with me that some of you may have seen. It was by an old preacher, his his name I didn't know, but he said this, he said, Satan disguises submission to himself under the ruse of personal autonomy. In other words, he doesn't just tell you, serve me, he, he wants you to be independent. He never asks us to become his servants. Not once did he say to Eve, I want to be your master. But the shift in commitment is never from Christ to evil, it is always from Christ to self. That is what happens. And instead of his will, self-interest now rules and what I want reigns. And that is the essence of sin. It is when we please our flesh that we, our salvation is in peril. It's when we please ourselves that we are in great danger of falling into sin. We don't make, people, don't, people that serve God, I'm not going to say never, but I'm pretty close to never, never make a decision I'm going to serve the devil. What happens when people walk away from God is they decide to serve themselves. They decide to serve me. 
what I want, what pleases me, the, the levels that I'm happy to live at. You know, when we bring ourselves to the altar, there is a desperate need for our flesh to die. Choices that compromise our spiritual integrity and focus on our own comfort are the subtle beginnings of drifting in our relationship with Jesus Christ to being acquaintances with him at a safe and comfortable distance. We need to hear the voice of God. We need to let his word and his spirit prick our conscience and not shut that out. We are so good. I am so good at just trying to not listen when the voice of the Lord is tapping on my shoulder. But we need to listen to his voice. We need to be willing to say, not my will be done, but thy will be done. If God manifests in the flesh, prayed that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think we need to pray it so much more than he did. It needs to be a regular part of our lives where I say, I die that you might live. I die that you might live. Amen. When your choices are challenged by the Word of God, when the decisions you're making are confronted by the Word of God or even by a man or a woman of God and you respond with, but I want to, you need to listen to what you're saying. That I want to is the issue. That's the problem. But I want to do this. I feel like I'm doing enough. I feel like this is a good balance. But if God is knocking and we say, but I want to, something needs to die. In the Old Testament, often there was a price paid for an altar to be built. You read in 2 Samuel chapter 24, there's a story about King David. He'd, he'd made a mistake. He'd done something that didn't please the Lord as a different situation and and as part of his response that he needed to build an altar and the Lord said to him you need to build this altar in a specific location it was on the threshing floor of a man named Arauna I think possibly you pronounce his name and when when the king spoke to this man the man had a kind heart he had a generous heart and he said to the king hey you can have it for nothing he said you can have the place you can have the wood you can have the animals I've got it all here it's yours because he had a a good heart and right attitude towards his king but David said these words that are now very famous and very powerful in 2 Samuel 24 and 24 it says the king said unto around a nay but I will surely buy it of thee at a price neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which does not cost me nothing so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David said, I can't offer something to God that doesn't involve me contributing, that isn't coming from it. There's no price to be paid. He knew that when he approached God, he needed to give of himself. And when you build an altar, when you come to the altar, it cannot be a casual, light-hearted thing. Nobody else can give you the materials. Nobody else can give you the sacrifice. You have to bring your own. When you come to the altar, you've got to bring the price of what the Lord is requiring us. We must be willing to pay a price. It's not a popular message, but it's a biblical message. We must be willing to pay a price. We must be willing to offer of ourselves. David knew it was not good enough to just let somebody else take the cost for him. Faith and obedience happen at altars. Genesis chapter 22 Verses 1 and 2, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. Almost like twisting the knife, reminding him of how much he loved his son. Get thee into the land of Moriah, 
and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. The son that Abraham waited a hundred years to have is now being required as a sacrifice on an altar. It's one of those stories that we have the benefit of hindsight of knowing that there's a happy ending on Mount Moriah. So that doesn't maybe impact us the way that it should, but it's not possible for you and I to comprehend both the depth of despair that Abraham felt at this commandment on one hand, but also the great faith that he had to trust God on the other. He was torn between his love for his son and his faith in his God, and the Lord allowed Abraham to go right to the point, right to the very brink of taking Isaac's life before intervening and providing an alternate sacrifice of a ram caught in the thicket. God will speak to you sometimes and ask you to be willing to sacrifice things in your life that may be of great value to you, that may be close to your heart, that you may feel is a price that's hard for you to pay. But if you will trust him and come to an altar and lay that thing at his feet and be obedient to his voice by faith, he will take care of you. Amen. That story is there for so many reasons. One is to encourage us to trust God when the price seems too much. The other is to show us that God will provide a substitute sacrifice on our behalf. That's why the King James says that the Lord Abraham declared that God will provide himself a sacrifice. It's prophetic. Amen. Our relationship with God is maintained and preserved at an altar. In the tabernacle, every day there was a sacrifice in the morning and a sacrifice in the evening as a part of the ongoing connection and commitment between God and his people. It wasn't a response to an event. It was daily commitment and consecration. And sometimes we just have to come to the altar to recalibrate. Sometimes we don't necessarily think, Lord, I've got this issue or that issue. Sometimes we just need to come and say, search my heart, Lord. Realign me with who I'm supposed to be recalibrate me, get me working exactly how you want me to be. We need to remind ourselves and our God that we are dedicated to him. Amen. Sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes it's just, I just want to be close to the Lord. Sometimes there's an altar call and you don't even necessarily know why you're going, but you just want to go and draw near to the Lord. Amen. I love seeing our young people, get our, our children even get to the altar and pray one for another. We need to feed that. We need to foster that. We need to get around them and encourage that and model that for them as well. God forbid that our kids would come to the altar while we sit back and watch. Lines were drawn at altars in the Old Testament. A chapter of Israel's history is a very wicked king and queen and a compromised half-hearted people. And then a wild-looking old prophet named Elijah stood on Mount Carmel and issued a challenge. He issued a challenge that we've been preaching about pretty well ever since. First Kings chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, Not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under and I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. 
and call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. I was like, well, that seems like a good idea. The prophet said, how long will you halt between two opinions? How long will you waver? How long will you sit on the fence? How long will you try to please two masters? What Elijah was saying was, today at this altar we draw a line in the sand. We draw a line in the sand and today we make some decisions. He said, today choose your God and serve him. If it's God, then serve him. If it's Baal, then serve him. But he said, this backwards and forwards thing, it's got to stop. He said, at this altar we draw a line. Amen. And there are times we have to come to the altar in church because we need to draw some lines. Because there's this bit of confusion and a bit of double-mindedness and a bit of wavering and, oh, I'm not sure and I still want to be here and I still want to be there. And the Lord says, how long will you halt between two opinions? Draw a line at the altar. Make up your mind who you're going to serve. Sometimes there are things in our lives, they're habits, practices. Sometimes they're places. Sometimes they're people that need to be cut out of our lives because they're contributing to us sitting on a fence to waver between two sides. The altar is a place to make up your mind. It's a place to decide if I will really serve God. Is Jesus really God? Then if he is, serve him that way. If he's really God, if he's really who he says he is, if he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords like the book says, then we need to commit to him as we should. Amen. When we come to an altar with faith in our hearts and a desire to respond to the preached word of God, God honors that. He honors that. But pastor, they didn't have altar calls in the Bible. No, they didn't, but they still prayed by faith. They still responded to the word of God. And anybody that's been here for a little while knows that there are times when the word of God comes forth and the Holy Ghost is just working your heart like a masseuse. It's just, you know, just making you squirm. And you're in that point of decision and you know that you need to respond. It's more than just a religious tradition. It's a practice that God honors when we do it the right way and we do it by faith. Amen. I believe that. I believe that God honors that. I've seen what happens when people step out into the aisle. You know, rationally it doesn't make any sense. God is the same at the back seat as he is at the altar. But sometimes that first step out of your pew and the the Spirit of God just hits you like a freight train and you begin to weep because you're responding by faith. We need to understand it's powerful to build an altar. It's powerful to come to the altar. Amen. It may not be exactly what the first century church practiced, but we don't practice everything exactly the same. We're living in a modern context. The important part is our doctrine. Apostles' doctrine and fellowship is the same. There's definitely a principle that they adhered to, and that was that the Word of God requires a response. Faith, real faith, will always generate a response to God's Word. Amen. It will always generate a response to God's Word. If it's just a religious habit, then it's got no value. If it's just a religious habit, there's little value. But if I come to the altar with a right spirit, if I lay some things down that I know I need to surrender, I take up some things that God wants me to have and I take them with me when I go out of here, then an altar call is a powerful place. It's not about a location. It's about an action 
and a principle, and I believe that God honors and blesses altar calls. I mean, I just felt to teach that this morning. I think most of us understand that. But there is something about presenting yourself to Him. Let's stand together this morning. We're not going to have an altar call. <laughs> Seems a bit anticlimax after that lesson. But I want you to understand when the Holy Ghost moves on us and the Word of God is preached, understand what's happening. Like they did in the Old Testament, we're bringing something that needs to die. Somebody said, that's me. I need to die. I know this flesh. I wash its face. I brush its hair every day. I know this flesh. It can't be trusted. It's got to be put to death that the Spirit of God can rule and reign in my life. Why don't we just lift our hands together? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.